Glad that you're here, and I uh, hope you came ready to study your Bibles. We, we do that here, and so we're studying the book of 1 Peter. You might want to go ahead and open up to 1 Peter and get ready there. What we've done last week, we initiated a couple of month long series that we're going to be walking through that little letter of 1 Peter near the end of your New Testament. And uh, when we started last week, we did about half of the first chapter. Today we'll finish chapter number one. Um, we saw last week that the theme um, of this book, and so it's the, the title for our series, is Suffering the Path to Glory. And so we looked at some things last time that how God desires to be glorified in His creation. How is that possible? Well, the idea of glory is just very simply putting God on display. And when God creates something out of nothing, man, that's, only, that's something only God can do. And so God is put on display. And in our lives, God can be glorified. But he's glorified in redemption. And redemption is that idea of taking something that's broken and making something worthy out of it. That's what he did when he saved us, right? And so it's that idea, like I mentioned last week, of taking lemons and making lemonade. So when God does that, man, that's something only God can do. Nobody else can possibly do that. So when you surrender your life and let God work in and through you, Wow, that's an opportunity for God to be glorified. He's put on display. He's manifested in your life. And what we found out is that he continues to want to do that in our lives. It's not just that one moment of when you surrendered your life in salvation. He wants to continue to refine us. He wants to continue to work in us, to continue to be glorified in and through us. Amen? And what we found out last week was is that if glory is where we're going... Suffering is how we get there. Now, that's not everybody's favorite subject. I get it. Nobody's really excited about the idea of saying, man, I can't wait to get on that train. But the truth of the matter is, is that when our life is going through difficult times, and when we allow the Lord to work through us with the right attitude, man, that puts Him on display. When everything's going great for us, and we got everything handled ourselves, which is what we prefer, well, I mean, who needs God, right? I mean, there's no real room for him to have to step up and do something that only he can do. But when you're going through tough times, wow, that's an opportunity for the Lord to really work through you. And so what we're going to see through this series is we're going to, you know, be touching on the issue of suffering over and over again. I don't want you to get like bummed out and think, I'll just skip the next couple of months. This is depressing. No, this is going to be hopefully encouraging to you to be able to handle the trials that you go through. Because the truth of the matter is, whether you show up here and pay attention to what God says or not, you're going to go through trials. You know it. You're going to have tough times in your life. We all do. Don't you want to know what God says about how to handle it right and give him the glory for it? Of course. So that's really what we're all about here. The second half of chapter number one, you'll be glad to know, doesn't specifically talk about suffering. But what it does for us is it kind of helps us get an idea of how to get there from here, right? Sometimes you think, man, where are we? I don't even know. How do I even get where I want to go from here? Well, that's kind of what I want to help you to understand today. What does that really look like? Are there some specific steps that I can take so that my life is pointed in the direction it should be pointed and moving in that direction, and I am working towards a life that really puts God on display? I mean, that's hopefully the desire of your heart. It's the desire of my heart. And what we're going to see are some of those steps in the second half of chapter number one. And that should be an encouragement to you. I certainly hope that it will. Um, because this journey to glorifying God in your life, man, it is not all that different than any journey you might take. I mean, if you want to get somewhere, you need a plan, right? So if you're a high school kid and you're nearing graduation... And you've got a plan, you've got an idea, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a teacher, I want to be a bus driver, whatever your dream is for your life, you know. Well, you should have a plan for that. I'm going to go to college, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to train, I'm going to get ready. Uh, maybe you're going to, you're, maybe you're, you, your family wants to go on a summer vacation. Whose family doesn't want to go on a summer vacation? Well, you've got to start making plans for that, right? You've got to make some strides and decide how you're going to get there. Well, if you want to glorify God, you probably ought to have some plans for that. You probably ought to have some intermediate steps that you can take so that you can say, wow, I'm, I'm on my way. Would that be an encouragement to you? 
That's what we're going to see in 1 Peter today. So if you'll follow along, we left off in verse number 12. So we'll pick it up at verse 13. We'll go to the end of chapter number 1. You follow along, I'll read it. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing you have purified your souls into ob- in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Now, you know, there's a lot of information in this set of verses that we just looked at, but I think you'll see as we walk through it, there is a theme that unfolds as we go. Let's just pray and ask the Lord to make that clear to us as we go. So, Heavenly Father, as we look at some of the details of your word, as you have revealed to it, revealed it to us and given us your spirit to teach us, Lord, I pray that he indeed would be our teacher, that your spirit would be our guide, that we would see the things in your word that we need to see so that each of us, looking into the mirror of your word, would see ourselves the way we need to see ourselves, the way you see us. And as a result, we can determine where we're at and where we need to go, what the next step needs to be. And I pray for each and every one that's here that's listening, that they would be able to discern today, that you would make it clear to them today, regardless of their circumstances, whatever the situation of their life is today, what it is you would have them to do. What is the next step for their life? Lord, if we will just do that, we'll know we've pleased you. So be honored, be glorified in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the steps that we're going to have start very simply. Number one, set your mind. Verses 13 to 16, set your mind. So if you're going to go on a trip somewhere, right, what's the very first thing you're going to do? Well, the very first thing you're going to do is just make up your mind. You're going to decide. You have to decide, yes, I'm going to do it. It's not just an idea. It's not just, I hope one day, maybe. You you decide, yes, I'm going to go on this trip. I'm going to go to this place. I'm actually going to make a plan so that it happens. Well, that's the same if you want to go on this journey of glorifying God in your life. It's not just going to happen because you say so. There are some specific things that you need to get your mind lined out properly to do. You need to just decide some things. You need to determine in your mind to get your mind lined out right so that you are able to begin then the planning to get you where you need to go. Verse number 13 starts out with the word wherefore, obviously connecting all of the information we learned in the first 12 verses. And if you weren't with us, you can go on our website and listen to that message. You can go back and read those first 12 verses. But basically, what we saw last week was how that God had a purpose for our life. He gave us this promise, and this promise is ultimate glorification and giving him glory along the way. But he has a purpose for our life, and that purpose is using these difficulties, these trials and tribulations called suffering, and how he'll use those things in our life to get us to that point. And so with that, we looked at how God tests and tries our faith all along the way. You might look back at verse number 7, for example, in chapter number 1, that it, it compares it to the refining of gold in the fire. That's the test of your faith. Those are the difficulties of life that come into your life and circumstances to put you to the test, to see if you're going to just believe him. So as a result of that introduction of the first 12 verses, it says, wherefore, and then your first point in your notes that, that I've put in there is letter A, prepare yourself. 
You need to prepare. That's what we're talking about. You need to set your mind. You need to prepare yourself. It focuses on a mindset. This is the language that we see in verse number 13. How are you going to prepare yourself to handle the challenges of a Christian life? How are you going to prepare yourself mentally to handle when the difficulty comes, when suffering and tough times come into your life? Well, in verse number 13, it starts by saying, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, that's a weird saying. I mean, that's just not something that, you know, you're not going to lunch tomorrow and, you know, having lunch with somebody and say, you know, I girded up the loins of my mind yesterday. I mean, that's weird. They'd look at you funny, right? Okay, well, but that has meaning. Okay, so if you've been in church any time and you remember some of the Bible history, okay, the idea of girding up your loins is an illustration. The idea that, believe it or not, okay, the dudes back then kind of wore skirts, okay? And so, you know, if they were going to go to work or if they were going to go to war or if they were going to prepare to do something, they needed to gird up their loins, which means they'd gather up the skirt and they had a way of cinching it with a belt so that their legs were free and they could run and they could work or they could fight or they could do whatever it is they had to do. So that's the imagery that God's trying to use. And he says, for your mind, you need to get your mind where you are preparing to do something. So the girding up of your loins is preparing to go do something, work or fight, whatever it might be. In your mind, you need to prepare it so that you're ready to do something. Well, how exactly do we do that? Well, we're going to compare Scripture with Scripture. We're going to let God define for us what he means when he chose to express himself in this way. So we go to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14. And a lot of you might recognize that Ephesians 6 has the context of spiritual warfare and putting on what is called the armor of God. And in verse 14, it says, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. So there's something about truth that's going to be associated with this imagery of girding up your loins. So living in a world where everybody's lying about everything and truth is considered to be relative, you need to make truth your standard. You need to make truth the thing that prepares your mind for what it is you're planning to do. Well, again, comparing Scripture with Scripture, a lot of you already know this. John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Here's the definition. Thy word is truth. So what God's trying to tell you is you're preparing your mind to get ready to do something, and that something is to give God the glory. You need to start by getting ready, by taking God's word, which is, by the way, the mind of Christ, and making sure that it becomes effective in your mind that God's word becomes such a part of your life that you are preparing yourself by spending time regularly and daily in God's word. It changes your mindset. It causes you to think like God thinks rather than like you think or your friends think or your neighbors think or general society thinks. God's word will shape the way that you think. And that's what he wants. That's why regular daily reading of the word is important. That's why Biblical discipleship is important. If you're not involved in biblical discipleship, we have opportunities for you here. Just write that down on the connection card. We'll help you with that. And we want you to be able to get your help. And so we, we offer that to you. But you have to make up your mind that you want to live according to truth and not just according to pop culture. You have to decide that this is something important to you. Well, if you look in Psalm 119... And verse 28, the Bible says this, My soul melteth for heaviness, strengthen thou me according to thy word. So what we see is, is that you prepare yourself, right, when you strengthen yourself via God's word. You strengthen yourself via the word of God. And so you're girding up the loins of your mind. That means you're getting ready to do something, and that is associated with truth, and truth is defined as the Scripture, and the Scripture is given to give you strength because you're going to go on a journey that is going to have trouble. You're going to go on a journey that's going to be challenging. So you need to strengthen yourself by spending time in God's Word. And listen, nobody's going to embarrass you. We're not asking you to raise your hands, but if you're honest this morning, and you're in church, you ought to be honest. Within yourself, answer the question, have you been doing that? Have you been strengthening yourself 
and girding up the loins of your mind with this book, God's Word, regularly, systematically, daily, studying, reading, reinforcing, understanding how this book becomes your strength. Because if the honest answer that you have is, yeah, not really, I haven't been doing that. And if it so happens that you find yourself in the circumstances of daily life, which are hard, with trials and difficulties and people getting up in your world and causing you trouble and life isn't fair and it's hard and, and all the things are happening and you're getting weak and you're getting frustrated and you're getting depressed and you're getting mad and, and all the things, all the emotions that come. Well, don't be surprised because you don't have the mind of Christ working in you. You're not strengthening yourself according to these things. It goes on in verse 13. The next thing says, be sober. Listen. This is a Baptist church. I shouldn't have to say to you, don't get drunk, right? But the Bible uses the phrase, be sober. Look, that's obvious, right? Everybody knows that. Let me give a hearty Baptist amen. What do you say? Come on. I mean, everybody knows that, right? And if you didn't amen, you know, what's wrong? Okay, so whatever. So the idea is, it's more than obviously that, but it's more than just that. Because, the, because God uses the, the phrase, be sober, to mean be watchful. If you were to flip the page over in 1 Peter and look at chapter number 4 and verse number 7, it says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. We find this idea of being sober, meaning being sober-minded. Be alert. Be aware of what's going on around you. You're never going to glorify God if you just kind of go with the flow of current society because current society is flowing in the wrong direction. That's why when you take a stand for the Lord and you decide to be aware and follow the leading of the Scripture, you literally are going against the flow. And therefore, you have difficulty. Therefore, you have suffering and persecution because you are choosing to go against the flow of the direction everybody else is going. That's particularly challenging for teenagers. Teenagers want to fit in. They want to be a part of kind of what everybody's doing, and they want to be cool, and they want to, you know, whatever. And, and what happens is the world is pushing you a direction, and you're trying to figure out. I know it's hard for you. You're trying to figure out, how can I still be cool with the world and yet not disappoint the Lord? You know what's going to happen. Eventually, the light's going to turn on in your mind, and maybe it has for some of you, that, well, you just can't. Because if anybody loves the world, the Bible says he's the enemy of God. And you just got to make up your mind that you love the Lord enough to take your stand. And you have to be sober. You have to be watchful. You have to be aware of these things. So God sets the absolute standard. It is his word, right? And so in your mind, if you read it, if you study it, if you memorize it daily, things we should be doing, that's just the beginning. If you're not doing that, I mean... You're not really relevant. I mean, you're not even in the game. You're not, even, you're not even deciding to do it. But say you are doing that. Say you're spending time in God's Word. I mean, you're faithful in church. You're learning stuff. Okay, well, now you get your mind in line by spending time with the Lord in prayer. Because as you pray and meditate on the Scriptures and work them through your heart and your mind and you communicate them back to the Lord, what you're doing is you're becoming more aware of his will, you open your eyes from praying, you're more aware of what's going on in this world, and everything starts to get a little bit clearer. God takes his word that you've hidden in your heart, and he gives you a sober attitude about this present evil world and your role in it. You're aware of it. So, I put in your notes this way. You prepare yourself, right, when you take the details of life a little more seriously. That's what, it, that's what it really means to be sober. Take the details of this life a little more seriously. Don't just say, ah, it's okay, ah, whatever, ah, it's not that big a deal. Well, maybe it is a big deal. Maybe some of those details really matter in your journey of walking forward with the Lord. And the more that you just allow things to happen that are questionable well, that's hindering your ability of ever really pleasing the Lord in your life. The third thing in this verse, it says, and hope to the end. Now, last week we gave you a biblical definition of the word hope. And basically it was to anticipate 
a certain future. God promised that something's going to happen. Because he promised it, it's absolutely going to happen. There's no question about it. But the fact that it hasn't happened yet, we hope in that thing. And so we talked about the end and, and the coming of the Lord and our gathering together unto him as the rapture of the church and that sort of a thing. Well, in this case, it says hope to the end. Well, what is it that we're supposed to hope for? What is the thing that we're supposed to anticipate? Well, it says for the grace that is to be brought to you. So there's some more grace that is coming to you. We're not talking about saving grace. We're not talking about the grace of salvation when you finally surrendered your life and asked Jesus to save you. That is God's grace. But that's not all the grace because James chapter 4 tells us God gives more grace. Hallelujah, he gives more grace. Who doesn't need more of God's grace, right? And so that's an important point to keep in mind. There's always more grace out there. The grace of salvation, that's a done deal. But we as Christians are to hope unto the end for the grace that is to be brought unto us so we can expect more. And the idea is the end of your faith, right? If you look back in verse number 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And last week we spent some time talking about how, okay, when you receive Christ as your Savior, that was the salvation of your spirit, And at the rapture of the church, it will be the salvation of your body. But your soul is the real you, your mind, your will, your emotions, on the inside of your body looking out the eye holes. And so your soul never really fully realizes its salvation until the body realizes its salvation. And so the salvation of your souls comes at a time yet future. It becomes the end of your faith. Why is that? Because you no longer need faith when everything is sight. You're in the presence of a glorified Lord. What do you need faith for? Faith is the opposite of sight. Now, for those of you that are Bible students, and I mentioned this last time, the the context and the applications we're going to be drawing are strictly for the church. But there are flavorful interjections that point towards the Jews and work towards a time doctrinally that will be a transition into a time of tribulation where the nation of Israel is focused again. This would be one of those references, just for those of you who are interested, okay? The idea that the nation of Israel will, through the time of tribulation, ultimately receive the end of their faith and the grace, which is the salvation of those that endure unto the end of the tribulation, okay? But that's a specific application. I just promised you I would give you those, so I thought I'd throw it out here for those of you that are interested. It has a Jewish focus going with it as well. Psalm chapter 30 and verse number 5 is kind of the idea. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Well, doctrinally, what's the morning? Well, the morning literally is when the sun rises. Well, according to Malachi 4, Jesus Christ is the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness that arises with healing in his wings. It's the dawn of a new day, the day of the Lord. And so weeping may endure for a night, friends. The night is the church age. We may go through suffering and difficulty during the night. But man, hang on. Hope to the end because joy comes in the morning. Can you see how this is going to focus your mindset? Okay, so you prepare yourself in this case by being confident in God's promises. God gave some beautiful promises. And regardless of your current difficulties, man, look up. Your redemption draweth nigh. Look ahead. God's going to take care of it. Okay, so we want to prepare ourselves, letter B, as obedient children. As obedient children. Verse number 14. Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, right? So what we're going to enter into now is this idea of obedient children deals with your interaction with your heavenly father. You're a child. That's what you're referred to. And so, as a child of your heavenly father, he calls you to live a certain way, which is in stark contrast to the way that you used to live before you knew him as your heavenly father. He expects you to live an obedient life. He expects you to leave the old stuff behind. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 describe what all of our lives virtually looked like before we came to know the Lord Jesus. Where in time past, you walked according to the course of this world. That's the flow of the society. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. 
among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, every one of us has varying degrees of how that played out in our lives, but every single one of us, before we knew the Lord Jesus Christ, were in that category. We were selfish, and we lived for ourselves and our selfish, lustful desires. We wanted what we wanted it, and we want it now. And we were on our own path, and we were the boss. And that's the way we managed our life. That's the way we made our decisions. And at the end of the day, we were children of wrath. We were under the judgment of God. But if you've received Christ as your Savior, you're not there anymore. You're now a child of God. You've been redeemed from that. Okay, so go back to 1 Peter, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. In your notes, I put this, unsaved people, you have to understand, are ignorant of God's truth. I was, and so were you. Unsaved people, and by the way, this is a theme that runs all through the New Testament. I have a few references for you. Romans chapter 10, verse number 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So people who have yet to submit themselves to the righteousness of God, they really don't get it yet. They don't really understand exactly what God's offering them. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, these are people who don't have God's life in them, through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. They're ignorant of the, of the free gift that's offered to them. 1 Timothy 1.13, speaking of himself, Paul says, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. You know the definition. Ignorant doesn't mean you're unintelligent. Ignorant means you're uninformed. And this world is full of people who are uninformed about the truth of the blessing of God that's offered to them. That's why we have the job to get it to everybody. That's why we need to get the gospel to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, because they're in the wrong path. They're going the wrong direction. And so he calls us to prepare ourselves as obedient children. How exactly? Well, he says in verse 15, So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Now, the way that word conversation is used is it literally means more than just verbal communication. It means your conduct because your actions speak louder than your words. So in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 2, it uses it this way. It says, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Well, if somebody can behold it, it must have something to do with the way you're behaving, not just what you say. So you might ask the question, okay, well, just how holy do I need to be? (laughs) Well, it says, in all manner of conversation. It goes on, it says, as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy, right? So I want to point out something, though, because you might be confused. I would have been confused in time past until I studied it. It does not say, Be ye sinless as God is sinless. It says be ye holy as God is holy. Because holy doesn't mean sinless. There are two different meanings. The definition of holy in your notes means sanctified for God's service. That's what it means. To be holy means to be sanctified or set apart for God's service. And verse 16 that says, Because it is written, Be ye holy for I am holy. That's a quote from Leviticus 11.44. Leviticus 11.44. Go ahead and put that up. Let's get the next one. Leviticus 11.44, please. There we go. Thank you. Notice how it's used. You shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. The idea is the Levitical priesthood that served in the temple that were to carry out the service of the Lord. They were sanctified for that work. They were set apart for that specific thing that they had to do. And that's the context of what's going on here. So holy is sanctified for God's service. So to be sanctified means to be holy. The New Testament equivalent would be 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
verses 19 to 22. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That sounds a lot like not fashion yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Okay, if you name the name of Christ, depart from iniquity. Verse 20, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, the former conversation, the lusts and your ignorance, if you purge yourself of those things, you'll be a vessel unto honor, here we go, sanctified and meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That's practical holiness. You want a definition of be holy as I am holy? That's practical holiness. You prepare yourself and put yourself in a position where you are set apart to serve the Lord. You are sanctified, meet, suitable for God to be able to use you. You are prepared for every different kind of good work that God may ask you to perform. It's a mindset of living your life a certain way. It is not a legalistic list of do's and don'ts. It's a lifestyle. It's a choice that you make. You set your mind, and if you don't, it's just never going to happen. It never will. The next thing that you're going to need to do is, number two, set your bearings. Set your bearings, verses 17 to 21. Because once you make up your mind to go somewhere, the next thing that you need to do is get some directions. I mean, if you're going to get directions, you have to first know where you're at. And if you know where you're at, and then you know where you want to go, you can chart a course, right? Has it ever happened to you that somebody would call and they're, you know, say you're having a get-together at your house, and they're like, I can't find your house. Okay, uh, I'll help you. Where are you at? I don't know. Okay, well, I got to know where you're at so I can help you figure out how to get here. If you don't know where you're at, you can't know where to go. And that's what this is all about. God's trying to focus our mind a little bit on, hey, you need to, now that you've made up your mind, you have to have a good understanding of where you're really at in this spiritual journey so that you can have the directions. You can know what, you, what is the next step you need to take. So it's kind of the big picture view. We're going to look forward and we're going to look backward. And then getting that context, we'll have an idea of where we're at today. That's your bearings. Okay, letter A, you need to place yourself. Before it was to prepare yourself, now you need to place yourself. Where are you on this map? Okay, so obviously that's important to know because if you want to give God glory, well, we know that you're going to be in for some suffering and trials. And so like the refining of gold, right, we, we live our lives and when we're actually in the midst of suffering and hardship, it's, it's a challenge. And when that happens, like the melting of the gold, the impurities of our life rise up to the surface so that everybody can see them, right? And, and you might behave in ways that you're not always proud of because, man, life's coming at you hard and you don't like it. And so some of the stuff that you'd rather keep buried sometimes comes out and you say things you wish you hadn't said and you do things you wish you hadn't done because it's hard. And so while this is going on, um, maybe we have some challenges. Maybe we're tempted to pray and ask God to judge all our enemies. Uh, maybe we pray and ask God because we know, look, Lord, I'm your child. Life is terrible. They're making it hard for me, those dirty dogs. So if you'll just get them, that'd be great. And what we do is we don't really take into account the fact that, I mean, we're not really asking God for righteousness. We're asking God for revenge. We're asking God not to do what's right. We're asking him to be on our side. <laughs> and, you know, that's fair. I mean, that happens. It's not the right thing to do, but, but it happens. Okay, now look at First Peter and verse 17 and says, 
And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. So he's like, well, if you're going to call on the Father, and if you're going to call on him to judge some dudes, uh, remember that he is no respecter of persons, that he's completely and totally impartial in his judgment, and that he will judge, yes, even you, yes, even me, properly. And when he does that, he does it in such a way that only he can fully comprehend. And so sometimes you live your life, and sometimes it's hard, and sometimes you find these situations, and you, think, you analyze the best you can. You step out of your own situation, and you look at it like a third person, and you determine, yeah, but the truth is, and any unbiased observer would agree, I am right, and they are doing me dirty, and it seems like they're getting away with it, and this is crazy. You ever been there? I have. It's crazy. But what you don't know is God will judge everybody rightly which includes maybe he has a specific purpose for you in your path and your journey and your next step to purify you to get more glory out of you that may not play out to your pleasure today but he's going to work those things which might mean that the situation you're in isn't really fair in your mind but he doesn't promise fair He promises impartiality in dealing with everyone rightly. And the Holy Spirit tells us in verse 17, just remember that. God is a judge of everybody, including us, everybody. And he judges every man's work. So as a result, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. So letter B, you need to place yourselves as accountable children, as accountable, because you will give an account of your life. He's reminding us all that we need to keep an eye on the future, the judgment seat of Christ, where each and every one of us will give an account of ourselves before him. And if you have an eye towards that day that you will give an account of your life as I and everyone will, well, then you will past the sojourning of your life, the daily walking out of your life, should have a characteristic healthy fear of the Lord. You say, well, he's my father. I mean, why would I be afraid of him? Well, he is also the judge. He is also righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 10, it is the context. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, According to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Same context, next verse. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. So he says, look, there is this day when each and every one of us will give an account to God. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. You better get busy. You better get busy now because, by the way, we don't know exactly when that day is going to be, right? We don't know when it's coming. We just know that it's coming. So he points us to the future and he reminds us of our accountability that we have before the Lord. If you go on then, it's interesting because 18, 19, 20, and 21 remind us that we were redeemed. Okay, so... We have this in front of us, but Christ, who is the spotless Son of God, He redeemed us from our vain conversations and our lustful, ignorant behavior. He redeemed us, redeemed us. You ever think about that word, redeemed us? It kind of makes me think about used goods on the shelf of a pawn shop. And they're just used goods. And they sit there until somebody's willing to come in and redeem them. Somebody's willing to come in and buy them. Well, that's kind of the story of our life, isn't it? We were the used goods. And our use was useless. 
That's the word vain in your Bible. From your vain conversation, your vain conduct received by tradition from your fathers. By the way, anytime the Bible uses the phrase from your fathers, typically that's another Jewish reference, okay? The fathers of the nation of Israel. But let's just keep it, let's just keep it local right here. Because now he's pointing at our past. See, he reminded us of our future, that we're going to be accountable to the Lord in the future. But he reminds us of our, of our past. He says, hey, by the way, and you were redeemed from your past of vain conversation, useless life, sinful brokenness, until the Lord, without spot, without blemish, came with his precious blood, and he redeemed you. He bought you back. He gave you worth. Remember where you came from. Your future is accountable, but your past is your guilty. You got it honest. You got it from your father. And he got it from his father all the way back to Adam. They're all sinners, and we all need to be redeemed. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20 says that you have been bought with a price. And verse 19 here in our text says that price is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let me just read it. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. So all of that takes place. You're going to get your bearings, you see, because there's something in the future and there's something in the past so that, verse 21, so that now your faith and your hope might be in God. I summarized it this way in your notes. Where you are today is directly related to where you come from, vain conversations, and where you're going, the judgment seat of Christ. So the question you have to ask yourself is, do you have clear bearings on your life? Do you understand where you're really at right now at this stage of your life? So if you've made up your mind that you want to glorify God, and if you've set your bearings from where you are now, then what's left is our third point. That's set your course, the last few verses. Now you're going to set your course. Because once you decide... I'm going to do it. And once you determine I am here and I want to go there, well, you know how it works. The first steps in that direction are critically important, right? I mean, you, you set out in your car to go somewhere and you set the GPS and then you turn in the opposite direction and the little voice says, recalculating, you know, or what? I mean, because if you set out in the wrong direction, it won't take very long. You'll end up, oh, this is deep, by the way. You want to write this down. You'll end up in the place you're headed, but it's the wrong direction. You have to make sure that when you start, you start right. The beginning of where you're beginning to go is, are the right first steps, and that's what we're talking about. So, verses 22 to 25. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, here it is, Unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. So, up until now, the first couple of points that we talked about really deal with your relationship with the Lord. You're the child, He's the Father, and the interaction is father son, father daughter. You're going back and forth between you and the Lord. This step is different. Now He's saying, now that you've purified your souls and you're obedient, Here's where you're going to set out, and it deals with your relations with others. This is where it begins to actually, where the rubber meets the road, literally. You, you start to live it out, and you're living it out so that everybody else can see. Where do you start? You start with the brethren. You start with the family of God. You see, all of your personal declarations of faith how much you love God, how much you believe in God, it's really just theory until you actually begin to put it into practice. Until you put it into practice, it's just 
religious talk. That's all it is. It sounds good. It makes you feel better about yourself. But if you can't put into practice point number three, then, friends, you're just kind of a poser. Just kind of a poser. It shouldn't be that hard, but, boy, don't you know, kind of it is hard. Letter A. This time, what we're going to see is you need to prove yourself. Okay, we prepared ourselves and placed ourselves. Now we're going to prove ourselves because this is where the proving ground begins. He wants you to start with other Christian believers. 1 John chapter 3, verse number 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life. How do we know that? Because we love the brethren. And he that loveth not his brother abideth in death. This is a characteristic of everyone who is truly born again. You love God's family. 1 John chapter 4 says it even harder, verses 20 and 21. If a man say with his mouth, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. I didn't say that. I read that. God said that. Let's review. If a man say something, what he happens to say in this context is, I love God. A lot of people say that. Probably all of you would say that. I hope so. But that same person hates his brother. God says, you're a liar. God says, what you said is not true. Oh, what did you say? Oh, I said I love God. Are you tracking? If you say you love God and you hate your brother, that means you really don't love God either. You're a liar. This is the first step. This is where you prove it. This is where it becomes real. There's a colon. There's further explanation in the sentence. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? I mean, the Bible's really practical, isn't it? I mean, you just can't get around this thing. Look, if I can't figure out how to love my brother in Christ and he's right here, how in the world am I going to try and sell you a bill of goods saying I love somebody I've never seen physically yet? When the one who I say I love that I've never seen physically commands me to love the one I can see. It's just hypocritical. Oh, by the way, verse 21 of that passage has been on the screen. And this commandment, not suggestion, this commandment we have from him, he who loveth God loveth his brother also. So demonstrating love for others is how you prove that you're the real deal. And that's what it says in verse 22. Unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Unfeigned, not fake, not pretending. You really mean it. You really care about God's family. Because you've got to understand, friends, your Christian life, if you claim to have one, is much more than just between you and God. You ever talk to people like that? You ever talk to people who say, well, this is very personal. I don't talk about my faith. Or, you know, I, this, it's, just, it's just between me and God. It's none of your business. Really? Okay, well, good luck with that. Because real Christian faith always, 100% of the time, manifests itself in living it out just graphically, substantially, visibly in front of everybody. He's changed you. He's, he's redeemed you. He's made you new. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. You begin to care about things you didn't used to care about. Really, look around. This is a decent-sized crowd here today. I mean, there's no real logical reason for us to care that much about each other unless Jesus put it in your heart to do so. Why otherwise would we be here? Why would we be going through this? It's how we prove ourselves. And what better way to do that than to prove ourselves, let her be, as a loving family. As a loving family. Now let me just say to you, I understand that's not always the easiest thing to do. I mean, I get it. I mean, I'm in, I'm in the category too. Not all the brethren are always that lovable. Right? I mean, some of you sit in the same seat every week because you don't want to sit on the other side because you know somebody over there. It happens. I get it. But it's a command. And it doesn't say 
love the lovable brethren. It doesn't say love the ones you prefer. It says love the brethren. That's what it says. And it says it needs to be unfeigned. So you know how it is, man. I mean, we all have days. I'm I'm not exempt from having days where I walk in here and I'm just not feeling it. I mean, it happens. Sometimes, you know, you kind of, you know, you put the face on and you look good and, how you doing? Awesome. You're lying. You're lying. (laughs) I mean, we all have days. I'm not talking about having a day. Everybody has a day now and then. I'm talking about the core of who you are. You either care about others in the family of God or you don't. And that's the characteristic we're dealing with. It's a command. See that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently. With a pure heart, sincerely, not feigned, fervently, passionately, with all your might. Now, I could stand up here and, you know, really work the whole passionate, fervent, sincere thing. And the truth is, we'll all go home and think, really? There's 800 people in that church. I mean... How you really, I mean, how are you pulling that off, really? You know? I mean, that's a tough, that's a tough pull. Well, I think the only way you can possibly pull it off are verses 23, 24, and 25. Now, verses 23, 24, and 25 are a wonderful little treatise about how awesome God's word is. But the real subject that God is communicating in 1 Peter chapter 1 has all of the information from verses 23, 24, and 25 about God's Word. It's just supplementary reinforcement for the main thrust of his discussion, which is verse 22, which is love the brethren. And so what he does is is he reminds us in verse 23, oh, hey, I know this is probably hard for you. He says, being born again... Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. You see how this just all kind of fills in. For all flesh is the grass, and the glory of man, the flower of grass, and the grass withereth, the flower fadeth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. And there's some wonderful Bible study. You could take those three verses and talk about how God's word lasts forever, and that's all great. It's true. But the thrust of the context that God is speaking to us, love the brethren, Without exception, you think to yourself, if you think, I know, listen, I think this way. I know you think this way. How am I going to pull that off? Oh, remember, you were born again. What are you trying to say? Oh, remember where you came from? Do Do you realize, do you remember what God did for you when you were enemies of the cross of Christ? Do you remember how he loved you when you were not so lovable? Do you remember how he opened his arms and took you? Can you recall, how long have you been saved anyway that you forgot that? Can you remember what kind of a wretch you used to be? Okay, let me say about for myself. I can. I I was a dirty dog. And God saved me and he changed me and I was born afresh. I got a fresh, clean, new start. And so did you. And you know what? If you have that mindset, the 2 Corinthians 5.17, new creature, old passed away, all become new. If that happened for you, if God gave you a second chance, a new start, is it possible that we can give others that same chance? Is that possible? Of course it's possible. Why? Because you have been born again. By an incorruptible seed, the word of God, that lasts forever and ever and ever. If you are planning on loving others in the family of God solely based on their lovability, you're not going to choose to love very many of them. You're just not. And if some other Christian in this church or wherever offended you, and that happens, That should not stop you from loving God and obeying his command to love the family of God. 
Because your faith is, shouldn't be in that Christian. It should be in the Lord. And so he commands us to do this. And he knows that it's a challenge for us. So he adjusts our perspective to where it needs to be. So we can give him glory. Because when you can do that, it's not you doing it. It's the Lord doing it. And he's glorified through it. And yes, it is a challenge. And yes, it results in some suffering. And yes, people stomp on your heart and treat you bad and unfairly. But you overcome because you've been born again. And it's not your life. You've been bought with a price. Are you seeing how this fits together? You're born again by the word of God. And this seed of the word of God is incorruptible. It can't be spoiled by any circumstance. And it's eternal. That quality of incorruptibility lasts forever and ever and ever. Never gets tired. 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on love or charity, says in verse number 7 that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Does your expressed love for the family of God do that? Can you bear all things with other people that you maybe don't even know that good? Can you believe all things and hope all things and endure all things? Because that's real love, right? I mean, how are you going to prove it? How are you going to prove it in your life? Well, there may be a lot of different ways, but can I suggest to you that one of the ways you can prove it is by being actively involved in the small group system that we have in this church in the middle of the week called Life Groups? Well, it's not the be-all, end-all of everything. But the point is, could you possibly obey God enough and love God enough to say, I'm going to take time. By the way, if you love someone, you spend time with them, right? I'm going to take some time out of my schedule in the middle of the week. And I'm going to intentionally invest some effort and resource into loving people that I kind of don't even know. Because here's the deal. This is a small community. A lot of you have lived here your whole lives, and you have plenty of good friends already. You don't need new ones. I get it. But that's not the command. I'm going to love my favorite brethren. I'm going to love the brethren that I choose to love, and the guys that I don't choose to love, well, you know, whatever. That's their business. Who cares? I don't care. I don't think that's the attitude the Lord intended. But if you, we have designed these small groups for a lot of different reasons, but one great reason is you can prove your love toward people that are in the family, maybe they're not that lovable. Maybe they are and you just haven't figured it out yet. You haven't given them a chance. So you don't show up. So you just, you know, I just, you know, I'm tired. Well, you know, we're all tired. But God commanded us to do what we do. I mean, if it's important to you, do you want to give glory to God? Do you want to walk on this path? Have you made up your mind? Have you determined where you're at, and are you willing to take the first steps? Because the truth of the matter is, there's a lot of Christians in Christianity today that they can say whatever they want. They haven't proven it. They haven't proven it. There's challenges, man. If you're going to stand with the Lord, you're going to stand against the devil, and you're going to stand against the society. And the result in your life is going to be some unpleasantness. But that's okay. Because you know you're doing the right thing. And it's worth it. Your life has meaning. The question you have to ask yourself, is that a journey you want to take? We work really hard around here to present to you God's truth. And I feel confident we've done that today. But we can't jam it down your throat. It's up to you, man. You have a free will to decide. And now is your chance to decide. So let's pray together. I just want to ask you a question. Because maybe you're here and you'd say, man, I, I want to do this. I've never heard of this before, but you're not even really on the road yet. And what you need to do is you need to pray and ask Jesus Christ for that free gift of eternal life. That he would save your soul, that he would forgive your sins, and he would give you new life starting today. For the first time, this is the day. I'm going to do it. Nobody's looking around, but I just want to pray for you. If you are here and would say, I need to be saved... And I wish you'd pray for me. Nobody's going to bug you, but I want to pray for you. Is there anybody like that? Just raise your hand where you're at.
And I just want to know. Anybody at all? Just raise your hand. I want to pray for a couple people in the middle. God bless you. Anybody else? Upstairs too, I see you. God bless you. Thank you so much. So for the rest of you, a lot of you know this stuff. You know about what the Lord has for you. So really the question for you is practical holiness. Have you made up your mind? Do you know where you're at? And do you really want to go down the road of glorifying the Lord? If you do, God spoke to me today. I want to do that, and there is a specific next step. I need to set my mind right. I need to get in the Word of God. I need to start loving people. Whatever your first step is, God made it clear to you today. I want to pray for you. Just raise your hand. God spoke to me about this message. Just hold your hand up high just for a second. Just hold it up. There's hands all over. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we're so very thankful. You love us. Man, you redeemed us. We were junk on a shelf, and you bought us with the precious blood of Christ. We can never pay you back, but we surrender our whole lives to you because you're worthy. And I want to pray for these who raised their hand and said, man, I I don't know I'm saved, but I want to be. I just pray, Lord, that when there's no magic words in their heart, that they would just cry out to you. They, They recognize they're sinners. They're on the wrong path, and they need forgiveness. And they're willing to surrender their heart and their life to you. They would ask you for forgiveness of their sins and that you would come and be the Lord of their life. And that from this day forward, they'll live a life surrendered to your will. Well, similarly, for the Christian brothers and sisters, Lord, for whatever reason, things have clouded up their their path and they kind of got away from it. But today they said, this is the day. I pray that they would just surrender afresh and begin to walk in this path and not live as a poser, that you would be honored and glorified in their lives and that we could all rejoice together because of what you've done. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can stand up with me.